0: breakout that we're doing, it's called grace that is greater than sin, addressing hopelessness in the midst of failure. And my guess is the the next story I share, the first story I share is going to resonate with at least most of you, if not all of you. Have you ever asked the question to yourself, "I, I will never, or said to yourself, I will never do that again. Have you ever said that to yourself? I will never, ever, ever do that again. Recently, I've told my wife that I want to end my night reading a book because it helps me go to sleep, and I get well-rested. And somehow, magically, every night, I end up with a laptop in my bed watching YouTube or Netflix or football highlights, and then I put it away at, like, midnight and then I wake up at 6 a.m., and I'm groggy, I'm exhausted. I'm like, what? Why did I just do that? I know that this is not a good thing, and I'm tired and anxious, a little sluggish. I will never do that again. Today, it will be better. I would imagine that if you are here, you have felt that, or you have said that. You can relate to it to some degree, and I'd imagine there's a degree of hopelessness in it. Because there's a lingering question, will it ever get any better? Will I ever change? Maybe for some habitual sins, you might even wonder if God could ever accept you. The goal of this workshop is simple. When you feel hopeless in your battle against sin and against failure, run to Jesus and believe that grace is greater than any sin or repeated failure. Let me repeat that, because if there's one thing that I want you to come away with this afternoon, while we're all maybe a little sluggish from the lunch we had and all the activity, here's the one thing I want you to come away with. Run to Jesus and believe that grace is greater than any sin or repeated failure. Let me pray for our time, and then we're going to dive right into the word. Father, we just come before you and praise you for your grace, and Lord, I pray that whatever, however we might be coming in here, uh, whether we feel, we, we have felt hopeless in the past, or maybe we currently feel hopeless, whether we have just felt reinvigorated by the word and the worship and the, the music, or we have felt just jaded to the sermons and the music and, and all that has has happened here. I pray wherever we are, I pray that there would be an overwhelming reminder of your grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ. God, would we cling to you? Would I cling to you? And would we hear from you the next 45 minutes? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to turn in your packets to pages 38 and 39, that's where we're going to camp out. And you will notice that there are two points on your outline. Our condition and God's solution. Our condition and God's solution. Let me read. If you look in your in your packet, page 38, you will see Romans 7, verses 15 through chapter 8, one. i I'm going to start there. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want... And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those. Who are in Christ Jesus? Now, I want to. I want to clarify our purpose here, just to make sure we we are all on the same page. We want the, the goal of this workshop is not to help you fight sin, but addressing the feelings of hopelessness. But my hope is, as we address the feelings of hopelessness, it will set you up in your fight against sin. So we are addressing the feelings of hopelessness, and I hope after you heard the words of Romans 7, verses 15 through chapter 8-1, I hope you heard a conflicted soul. And it's not someone who is kind of bottom of the barrel in their faith, but this is the Apostle Paul. Paul who wrote a majority of the New Testament. Paul who gave his life for following Jesus. So he's not someone that is has very little influence, not someone who has little faith. It is someone who we would aspire to be like, right? And we see just how conflicted Paul is. And I think we see our condition with with Paul in three ways. We see our condition. Here's our condition with hopelessness. The first is this. We are hopeless with shame. Now, before we dive into the text... It's easy to confuse what shame is and is not. Guilt and shame are similar and yet different. Guilt is I have done something wrong. Shame is something is wrong with me. Listen to Paul's words and see if you can sense the shame that he might be wrestling with. Verse 17, sin dwells within me. Now Paul here is describing the conflict. He states, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Why does he need to clarify this? Why is he doing that? Well, he's separating himself from the sin he commits because there is a reality of shame. It identifies you. It labels you. It marks you. The labels don't just identify things that we've done, but we carry them as scarlet letters that seem to be shining like blinking lights as you walk around. And we think people see them, and we know that God sees them. Have you felt this? This is shame, and it makes us feel hopeless because we believe that there is nothing that can be done to cleanse us from the labels that attach so much deeply to us. He continues, verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. Not only are we identified by the sins we've done and the sins committed against us, but we recognize how little good we do in return. He says nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me. Why does Paul speak to this why does he have to say it is no longer I who does it? Why does he need to say that? Because he recognizes the fruit of his life and it too often it it is not good. And he sees himself. He sees what he should be and he sees what he's not and he's like I need to separate the label from who I am. I need to separate what I do from who I am. Because he knows that without that, he is marked by something. He is marked with the shame of sin. In middle school, one of my more prominent sins was I gave into fits of anger and rage. And because middle schoolers are just the worst of people, people love to see me give into this rage. So at lunch, one of my peers, they, they threw a clementine from across the room at my face, and they, they had good aim. And uh, I grabbed it, picked it up. I was going to throw it back at him. I was going to get justice. I didn't get justice that day because the whole cafeteria started chanting, Zach attack, Zach attack, Zach attack. This is not an encouraging label. (laughs) It was not an encouraging label. It was a shameful label. In fact, I was known as that for the rest of the school year. It was shame. I wore that label... And it identified me for the rest of the year. And it never felt like I could shed it. And in fact, to this day, I really don't like being called that. So please don't call me that after this session. In all seriousness, can you relate to that? Can you relate to labels that have been applied to you that you feel like you can't shake? We feel hopeless because the shame from our failures... Give us a new label. What label do you wear most prominently? Where does it come from? These labels of shame make us feel hopeless. But there's another reason why we feel hopeless. We feel hopeless because we are without power. That's the second point under our condition. Hopeless without power. Notice what Paul says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. How many of us have thought something like this? Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep looking at pornography, or staying up late to binge, or going to parties and getting drunk, or overcommitting and burning myself out? or I keep saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Why, why, why? This is Paul's sentiment here. I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Anybody relate to that? And he continues that in saying, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Did you hear that? Paul sees himself and he recognizes, I do not do good. I do evil. And for some reason, even though I want to stop, I can't. This is Paul, an apostle, and he is addressing the very conflict that most of us wrestle with. I disdain the sin of adultery. Because it wrecked my family growing up. It it made me so angry because of what it did. Because my father left. And I could not believe why any man could do that to his family. And then I recognized through the Holy Spirit that I too was an adulterer through my pornography addiction. That I too was an adulterer anytime I lusted after another woman in my heart. And I was just as guilty. For a long time, I thought it was a bad habit that I could stop whenever. If I just hated it enough, I would stop. But to this day, lust is a struggle. It is far more powerful and far craftier than I had ever imagined, and I do not have the power to stop it on my own. And friends, the reality is, without help, we are all powerless against sin. Sin is more powerful than we realize. On our own, we are powerless. We are powerless without help. So in some respects, there's actually a wisdom in feeling hopeless when we feel like, when we, when we see the sins and the shame. Because there is a recognition that we don't have the power to get out. But that often leads to the third problem of our condition, and that is we are hopeless in despair. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. He understands the depths of evil that dwells within him. Can you relate to this? Have you ever gotten to the end of yourself? Just wondered how could I do such a thing? How could I be this type of a man or this type of a woman. There's a question he asks. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a great question. And and I want to help tease out something here that I think this is where we often deviate. See, Paul asks a great question. Who will deliver me? We often ask the question, how can I deliver myself? How can I fix this? How can I be better? How can I have victory over this thing? And after a while, you realize that you, on your own, we can't fix it. I can't fix myself. Or maybe you do fix it, but it comes at the expense of another sin issue or another failure that you don't ra- recognize. It's like whack a mole, right? It's like, I'm gonna hit one, three more pop up, right? Fixing gluttony gives way to extreme dieting. Fixing pornography becomes sexual promiscuity with others. Fixing going to the pornography or the party scene leads to a pornography addiction. Fixing social issues leads to isolating yourself from others. You and I recognize that we get caught in the same cycle over and over and over. And it's like this whirlpool of despair. You're swirling down and down trying to fight, but you recognize that you have no power to get out. And so the powerlessness, the shame, that I can't fix it, you just sink deeper and deeper to the point where I just don't care about anything anymore. Now, I've brought us to this point, and maybe you're like, I thought I came here for hope. (laughs) Here's where it comes. Because as you and I often ask the question, how can I deliver myself? Paul answers a very different question, the one that leads us to grace and to hope. You see, Paul doesn't ask the question, How can I deliver myself? but he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, most of us we go inward, but Paul goes upward. Hear this from Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. It's not in your packets, but feel free to write it down. This is what this is uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written has been fulfilled in your hearing. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Captive to sin, shame, powerlessness. Jesus has come to set captives free. And the end of that passage, he says, today, as Jesus is reading it, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is here to set captives free. And that is why when Paul asks the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God for those, uh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the great declaration in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's, how we apply our condition, as we see our condition. Whenever hopelessness seems to reign, understand that Jesus delights in overcoming hopelessness with hope through his grace. So stop asking the question, how can I deliver myself? And start asking, how can I rest on Jesus to deliver me? Because he delights in delivering us, as we come to him. But how do we do this? How does Jesus deliver? How does he set captives free? Well, we see it in God's solution. And for that, look in your packet, and we'll read Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 48. This is Luke 8, verses 40 through 48. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. behind him, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Three things we see in God's solution. First is that grace cleanses shame. So the woman is healed. And often, if we just kind of read it at face value, we're like, yeah, wow, Jesus healed the woman, it's amazing. There is so much more in this passage. What does the woman do? Remember, we ask the question, you know, we often ask the question, how do we deliver ourselves? And it's not an appropriate question. And we see this here because what does the woman do? She touches Jesus' cloak. She just touches the fringe of his garment and that's it. That's all she does. Think of this great faith we'll get to that. But all she does is touch a piece of clothing that Jesus happens to be wearing. Now, now, she is thinking, obviously, Jesus can help me. But why does she do it this way? Why does she touch the garment where she can't be seen? She does it in a way where you just kind of go up and like, wouldn't, wouldn't really know. Why is she so secretive? Well, she had a blood discharge of 12 years. So she would have been ceremonially ceremonially unclean in Israel. You you could not have a discharge of blood and be in the community of, of God's people. She wouldn't have been able to enter the temple, so she couldn't worship God. And then not only that, but notice how it said that she spent all her living on physicians in verse 43. So she was completely bankrupt. She was an outcast. and She was ashamed. In fact, the text doesn't even give you a name. It just says, the woman with a blood discharge. And here's the thing, if she was found out, if this didn't work, not only would she be in violation of the law, but she would have made Jesus unclean. Notice how how that could have affected her. Something is wrong with me. Everyone I touch, it turns bad. We can feel that way, not just with our sin, but how we've been sinned against, by our ailments, by our likes and dislikes. And she does one thing. She takes a chance. She goes to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment, hoping to be healed, and she is, but that's not the end of the story. Not the end of the story, because what does Jesus do? Who touched me? This is a dramatic scene. I want you to understand how absurd this is, right? Because Jesus asks this question, who is it that touched me? And Peter has, I think, a very rational question. Master, uh, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. AKA, of course, somebody's touching you. Everybody's touching you. What the heck do you mean? Right? What is Jesus doing? Why does he do this? I think it's because he's forcing the woman to come clean. He's forcing the woman to be exposed. And the bleeding woman comes trembling. She is fearful. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. But what happens is she ends up telling everyone what happened. And Jesus not only heals her, he restores her to community and to himself. She comes clean and and she fears that it will lead to further shame. But what actually happens is she comes clean and she is completely healed and restored. The reality is the way grace cleanses shame is by coming clean, by exposure. Earlier this month, I was racked with shame over something really stupid. I was thinking about another member of our staff team, our maker staff team, and I was just very jealous of them jealous of their influence, jealous of their ministry, jealous of how people cared about them versus me. And as I did this, I was just riddled with shame because I'm 36 and I'm jealous like a high schooler who wasn't picked for the basketball team, right? What the heck? <laughs> Aren't I better than this? How am immature? How ridiculous? And I just thought, if I share this with my discipler, like they're just going to think I'm like I'm immature, that I'm not worth investing in, I'm not worth this, I'm not worth that. Oh. And I confessed it to him. And he was so helpful. As I confessed it, he reminded me that I am valued for who I am by the Lord. and how I can be thankful, not just for how God's knit me and the people He surrounded me with, but how I can be thankful for this brother. That I was jealous of. And I was both hopeful because God drew near to cleanse, and I was reminded of who I was in Christ. See, I feared the label of this immature, self centered boy. And while that was the sin within me, God actually reminded me that I'm actually a son of the king. He reminded me of who I am in Christ. How does this apply? Bring your sin and your shame and your failures into the light. Bring your sin and your shame into the light. Friends, shame and sin dies in light. It cannot survive it. It cannot survive it. It destroys the fears that you hold of what, of what others might think. Their power is rendered ineffective when we walk openly before the Lord and before others. And it brings you to the God who can empower you through a new identity. And that's the second point under God's solution. Grace empowers. Jesus not only heals her... And restores her to community, but he empowers. I want you to notice the woman's social status. We already touched on it a little bit. She's interpreting or interrupting Jesus' pursuit of helping a high-ranking religious leader. Did you catch that? Verse 40. Jesus returned. The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. So you have a high-ranking religious ruler who has a need. How many of us do we often think when we come to God, well, why would God want to listen to me anyway? Right? She, maybe you can identify with this woman here. She's poor She's known as Bleeding Woman. She has no social power. She has no political power. She has no economic power. And yet Jesus stops for her. He didn't need to, right? Everybody was touching him. He doesn't need to stop. He doesn't need to interrupt anything. And yet he confronts her and he initiates with her. And I want you to understand what he does here. Notice what he calls her. She is only known as a woman with a blood discharge until Jesus calls her something different. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. She began the scene marked by her illness. She ends the scene bearing the mark of daughter of the Most High God. She began the scene isolated. She ends the scene restored to community. She began the scene scared to come close to Jesus, but even the slightest move towards him gave her power over sickness, shame, and sin. Grace empowers because we now have God's power in us and through us. We are given a new name, and it changes everything. It gives you entrance into his presence, to his resources, and his family. Our our youngest, we we had the privilege of adopting, uh, and uh, her name is Paisley. And we had our, our court hearing. And I remember during that court hearing, the judge talked about all, uh, all of the things that we were obligated to do now that we were family. And one of the things that struck me so deeply was when he said, And you will inherit from her, and she will inherit from you. Because what does an inheritance do? Who gets an inheritance? typically your children, your next of kin, do you do anything to gain an inheritance? No. You just get it when I die. When Paisley became a Guggenheim, that was it. Like, she doesn't have to come, wake up, and then prove to me why she should be a Guggenheim. She just is. There's nothing she can do about it. (laughs) You in Christ are a son or daughter of the King. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. (laughs) You have access to Him, to His power, to His resources. And by doing so, grace empowers you by giving you a new name. You are no longer the label that clings so close to you. God doesn't see that anymore because he sees Christ crucified in your place. He sees Christ's righteousness in you. And he sees you as son, daughter, and he says, go in Peace. And as we reflect on that, we recognize the last thing that we see in God's solution is that grace produces hope. It's important as we analyze this scene to recognize just how little movement the woman makes. We often think of people who have lots of faith, it's typically not someone who just touches someone's garment in secret. She's desperate. She's scared. This is not someone we often think of as having lots of faith. And the thing is, she doesn't have a lot of faith. She has faith in the right object. She has faith in Jesus. And she goes. She goes imperfectly. She goes secretly. But she goes. She knows that she needs help. She doesn't even cry out. She just inches her way towards Jesus, and Jesus is delighted to draw near to her. In fact, he doesn't dare let her get away without doing far more than she anticipated. Why does grace produce hope? See, grace points us to the God who will make all things new. What do we ultimately hope for? I think often we hope for lesser things, right? Sometimes we just think, all I hope for is to stop doing what I'm doing, to stop failing, to stop doing this. But that's not real hope. That is not where our hope should be. Our hope is to be acceptable to the living God, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And if we understand who we were versus who Jesus is making us to be, then we should be amazed We should be amazed at every shift from who we were to who we are becoming. Because remember, we were dead in our sins. We were made alive in Christ. Let us go back to Paul once more in Romans 7 and 8. He says, I do not understand my own actions. I want to do this, but I don't do it. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good You see, he knows and desires to do what is good, right, and holy, but the sin that so easily entangles continues to lie close at hand. And obviously we can relate to Paul's final expression, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I want you to understand why that is such a powerful statement. When he says that, rather than saying... How can I deliver myself? But saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? He is seeing from a perspective saturated by God's grace. Because, of course, he can't change apart from himself. He's de- he was dead. Dead people can't do anything because they're dead. But God can. That's why Paul rejoices at the end of this passage. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we know that we have hope? Because people dead in their sin don't see sin as a problem. They might see it as a nuisance. They might see it as a bad habit they don't see it as their biggest problem in their life. They may look to Jesus for help, but not from themselves. People alive in Christ look to the Lord and say, God, I am the biggest problem in my life. And they do it because we recognize the sin that we commit is now deeply inconsistent with who we really are in Jesus Christ. It's this dissonance that we feel. So here's how grace produces hope. Do you see any evidence of life? Is there any fight in you? Is there a desire to engage with the Lord and to confess, even if it's just touching the fringe of Jesus' garment, or whispering a prayer, or cracking open your Bible, or coming to a conference about Jesus despite all your fears? And praise be to God. Because that means the Spirit of God is at work in you, and friends, maybe you hear, heard that list and it's like, none of that applies to me. None of that's true of me. Then friends, take your first step towards Jesus Christ and know that he welcomes you home. One of my favorite books that I would really encourage you to go onto Amazon and buy, is called Extravagant Grace, God's Glory Displayed in Our Weakness, Barbara Duguid. And she says this, it's on the top of your outline. You are very weak, but you have a strong and perfect champion who has won the battle against sin for you, and he now fights it with you. You are still prone to wander, but you have a great shepherd who always pursues you and brings you back, carrying you home in his loving arms. You and I are very, very weak but you have a strong and perfect champion who has won the battle against sin for you. And he now fights it with you. How does this apply? If we have been rescued by the strong and perfect champion, then we can look without fear of the evidences of grace in our life. We don't have to look at just all the failures, but we can see where have there been signs of life? What are the small successes in your fight with sin? Where have you run to the Lord even in small ways? Where have you confessed? When have you been broken over what your sin has done to the Lord and to others? My friends, I want you to understand that any of that is supernatural through the Spirit of God. You didn't produce those things on your own. That's the Spirit of God moving in you to help you see your need for Him. It's supernatural. It means that He is at work. Every step closer that He brings you to Himself is a miracle. So celebrate. Celebrate the grace that He has given you. That you could even take one step towards Christ, and as you see these things, as we practice praising the Lord, keep running to Jesus as you are weak. One of my professors uh, at seminary, Ed Welch, he, he he said this: Jesus delights in weakness. Delights in weakness. Friends, it is very tempting to think I will only have hope when I am strong. And the gospel of grace is I will find hope when I come in weakness to the one who is strong. As we close, I want us to respond appropriately. That's what we've been doing in our conference, right? We've been singing and praising God. And so you'll see that There is the lyrics to Amazing Grace on your packet. So I'm going to actually invite you to stand, and we're going to sing the hymn Amazing Grace. And if you don't know it, just listen along. But I want you to hear these words before we start. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but I'm now found. Not by my own map but by Jesus Christ. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear the Lord and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear
1: the hour I first believed. Let's sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear! The. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far. home. When we've been here 10,000 years, Christ shining as the sun Then when we first began. Amazing grace, one more time. Amazing grace, how sweet
0: you that while we were sinners, that while we were wretches, and even as we see further still our wretchedness inside, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died and gave himself up for us, that when we were at our worst, you chose us. God, I pray that as we have sensed and felt hopeless, that hope would come rushing through and that this would be our anthem that we would be reminded that if we are in Christ, 10,000 years from now, we will still be praising your name as sons and as daughters, and that you chose us for that. God, we thank you and praise you, and would we come to you in our weakness. We pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.